from the MZ Studios Dallas Virtual Studios in cyberspace. This is Deconstructing Dallas. Greetings, everyone. It's your host, Ryan Trimble, joined once again by a man who is full of grace, the, of course, Sean Williams. Sean, good day, sir. Hey, Ryan Trimble. What is going on? How are you? Man, we are good. We are uh, powering through another day of uh, online learning and uh, snacks, snacks galore today. All the snacks. So, um, other than that, just you know, trying to do a lot of reading, trying to uh, stay focused and and learn and listen to a lot of voices. Well, I, I appreciate your voice. It, it looks like there are other people that I've seen who are utilizing where do we go from here as a topic. And, you know, obviously we got that from Dr. Martin Luther King, so it was not original to us, but it looks like uh, we obviously had a good idea because I see other people are utilizing the same thing. Um, I do want to um, encourage some folks, if you want to look at some some things you can do regarding finding out more about racist institutions, institutions of racism, um, systemic oppression. I've been doing, making some posts on my Facebook page, Sean P. Williams, which is open um, to for viewing. But if you go on my Facebook page and just look through the feed, you'll see that I've had some posted some articles and stories and videos regarding policing in America and how uh, American policing has roots in um Slave patrols. Uh, we posted Father Josh's homily. I posted Father Josh's homily there. I talked about uh, the lynching monument in Montgomery, Alabama, and what lynching has meant to the United States. And so I've, I've committed to doing seven days and seven of these assignments for people who are interested in finding out more. So feel free and uh, to go to my page. And I think Ryan, you've you've even flown by a little bit yourself. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm trying to keep up with you, Sean, and uh, forgive me, I'm probably behind, but I did see the one about uh, the horrific event in Paris, Texas in 1893. Um, I'll leave it there. I'm still, it, it, it's literally been living with me, and I'm grateful because these are the stories that people need to know and have a visceral, visceral response to, and th- that's... This is why we got to move forward to better. We can't go back to normal. Um, it, that, it's a saying that I've been kind of thrown around because, hey, I'm a comms guy and I like having slogans. But seriously, I don't want to go back. I've been using this statement through COVID, but now it's even more so um, uh, applicable in my life. I want to, you know, I don't want to go back to normal. I want to go forward to better. Well, I, I, again, I appreciate you for this conversation that we've been having and will continue to have. And uh, speaking of continue, we are going to continue this series and we have uh, a, a, another guest coming up today. Our guest today um, is our first female guest, actually, Sean. And I'm glad you'd mentioned that, you know, it's a really important perspective. Uh, uh, and so I'm glad that we were able to um, uh, reach out to Reverend Elizabeth Mosley, uh, she's a senior associate minister at Highland Park United Methodist, where I've attended church since uh, my days at SMU. Uh, she, uh, she's she been at Highland Park, I believe, 13 years. Uh, she's also now um, uh, you know, helping to lead one of the new ventures of, at Highland Park into Uptown, 
at Uptown Church, which is a service on Sunday mornings at the House of Blues. So uh, they are taking the church in the city uh, for the city. And um, I'm really excited to jump into this interview, Sean. Well, after this break, we will have an opportunity to come back and talk to Reverend Mosley. This is Deconstructing Dallas. Sean Williams, Ryan Trimble. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back, Deconstructing Dallas. Ryan Trimble, Sean Williams. Sean, excited once again for our guest today. She, of course, the Senior Associate Minister at Highland Park United Methodist Church and the the now Associate Minister at Uptown Church. We'll let her explain all her titles uh, here in just a sec. She, of course, Elizabeth Mosley. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you both so much for hosting and for having me. Absolutely. Well, now I've known you, Elizabeth, for for quite some time. You know, I've seen you, I've seen you uh, uh, at at Highland Park United Methodist, seen you preach. But uh, for those of us, for those of our listeners who who aren't as familiar, um, tell us about yourself and your ministry, and then your recent, your now venture into Uptown. Yes, yes, that is. Um, it's an exciting new new part of my journey and part of our church's journey. Um, I am from Houston originally, so a native Texan. After going to school in the Northeast, I got back to Texas as fast as I could um, and realized that I was interested in pursuing some ministry options. And so I ended up at Perkins, which is the School of Theology at SMU, um, and it's a United Methodist Seminary. So as I began my work there, I started working at Highland Park part-time while I was in school. And that was um, 15 years ago, which is, is pretty crazy when I think about it. So I started working uh, at Highland Park, then completed my schooling, uh, realized a call into ordained ministry, went through that process, um, and meanwhile was invited to come onto the Highland Park staff full-time so I've been on staff at Highland Park for 15 years. I've been full-time staff for 13 years. And um, I'm an ordained deacon in the United Methodist Church here in North Texas. So um, one of the things that started our series here talking about racism in America, um, and our title is Where Do We Go From Here?, is the killing in, in Minneapolis of George Floyd. And I just wanted to ask you, had you had the opportunity to watch the video? And then maybe what are your feelings around what you saw? I did. I uh, watched part of the video. Let me say that. Um, I watched, you know, several minutes of the video. And and then I stopped. Um, and I have mixed feelings, I guess, about watching the video. Part of me um, very much realizes that it is part of my privilege to not have to watch something like that, um, that kind of violence and uh, just ugly act. I mean, I have a privilege that I can stop and turn off the screen. Um, 
But part of me also has, well, there's kind of two aspects to it, I guess. I have a, personally, I, it's very difficult for me to watch um, violence and cruelty. And to me, that's, um, that's what that was. It was cruel and it was violent. And I personally just have, I struggle to do that. Um, but on another note, a lot of what I have read and heard people, um, especially black people, when they talk about the sharing of those types of videos, they, they've talked about it, or at least I've heard them say that it really is like a recurring act of violence then against them. And I kind of, I guess I made the decision to not be a voyeur of police violence towards uh, Black people, Black men in particular. And so for me, I watched part of it. Um, I've read the uh, kind of the transcripts, his words, his final words, um, but I chose not to to watch the whole thing for, for those reasons that I just stated. And like I said, I know that that comes from also a place of privilege, but in trying to be respectful, in trying to respect how, um, how uh, we share videos like that of Black people, but not of white people, and, and how that difference in and of itself is part of the problem. And so I've tr- I tried to respect that as well. Now, Elizabeth, following the, in the days following that, you, you hadn't been, um, you know, I, I know you've been judicious in, in what you said about the situation, but you did uh, have a discussion and, and you have an image that reads, uh, when the system is wrong, people who follow Jesus should be willing to overturn some tables. And you had a really nice statement about um, the story in Matthew 21 when uh, Jesus enters the temple and, and turns over the tables of the money changers. What, what was, uh, you know, what, what stood out to you about that, um, you know, that story in the Bible that, that, uh, you wanted to post about that? Yeah, I, you know, when I, this was actually, um, I think I posted this right around the time that the first protests were starting and I had, uh, I had seen, you know, some reports of looting and destruction, and I had also seen uh, several folks that I follow and have followed for a while on social media and different accounts talk about how um, how we don't really how we can't really uh, uh, oh I was going to use the word police but <laughs> that uh, that's a very um, uh, polarizing word at the moment I guess. Um, but we can't we can't really edit how people express their grief and rage. Um, and it's important for us to listen to that. And it just struck me that I was trying to think, you know, how how does scripture speak to us in moments of anger and frustration? Um, you know, there's so much, I think, sometimes around the issue of of respectability in Christianity. You know, we want to be, quiet and calm and loving and kind. And, and those are all good things. But I was really wrestling with what do we do when we get angry? And this image of Jesus, and not even an image, a story. I mean, it's the story that we have in, in at least three of the gospels where Jesus goes into the temple as he arrives in Jerusalem. And he sees the way 
the system that has been set up in the temple. And a little bit of historical context, I think, is important when you recognize what Jesus is really doing. Um, but he sees this, uh, the, the system that's been set up in the temple, and he is angry. And he flips over these tables. And it actually, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, he drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold who sold doves. Um, and so there is there is a, a a graphic and aggressive and in many ways, I mean, this is a violent act. Um, that word drove out. That's the same Greek word that we see in other places in the scripture where it talks about the spirit driving Jesus into the wilderness and in other, in other places where there's kind of an aggressive, um, dramatic push and movement. It's not like Jesus walked in and said, hey, if you're okay with this, I'd really like you to stop doing this. No, he walked in and flipped some tables over. But when I when I think about Jesus in that moment, it's a moment and not the only one where we see Jesus reacting as a human, but we also believe Jesus is God. And so there is something powerful about recognizing um, Jesus's response to what was an unjust system, a system really designed to take advantage of people. So... So as followers of Jesus, we don't get to just pretend that Jesus was this, you know, kind of quiet, respectable person who never made a, a, a ruffle, you know, in the in the social dynamic and systems of his day. He was willing to confront unjust systems. And if we claim to follow Jesus, then we're going to arrive in a moment like he did. We're going to arrive where we are confronted by some unjust systems and we will have to decide how we respond. Um, and if we want to keep following Jesus, then we may have to be part of overturning some of those tables of injustice. When I posted that. Yeah. And, and that is a really, I, I don't think we see a lot of that parallel, not enough of that parallel. And it also brings me to, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, who said that riots are the language of the unheard. And for a lot of people, while we're not condoning rioting or violence or anything like that, but we've seen a lot of people come out with statements putting the racism and the property damage in the same place and feeling like, in my opinion, it seems like there have been a lot of people who wanted to talk about the, the looters and rioters and make that a bigger deal than the actual injustice that we've talked about. And so do you have any feelings or thoughts on, you know, this notion of, okay, we see people who may have participated in this, but people, the same people will not talk about um, what the problems are that brought us to this place and don't want to really dig into that. Exactly. I, I totally agree with that. I think um, I, I've seen several places. So these, again, aren't my original thoughts um, in this case, but several places where people say, you know, you really should flip the script. Right. You, you can't say, you know, I know racism is racism is terrible, but it really is a shame, you know, that they're going after and destroying these buildings and the property and looting, right? You have to flip the script and say, you know, I know it's a shame that they're destroying some buildings and I don't agree with that, 
However, racism is horrible and it has brought us to this moment. So it's kind of a shifting of, of what we focus on. And, um, and I, I think that is, that's essential. If you are simply talking about the property damage or the violence or the, um, uh, the other types of, you know, expressions of anger that we have been seeing um, around the world, not only in our country. Um, if you're only talking about that and refusing to address the unjust systems that that created the need for this kind of response, then you're, you, and it just it does kind of baffle me because it's so obvious then that you're only addressing. Um, the symptoms and not the root cause. And again, going back to the story of Jesus in the temple, I mean, Jesus has preached and taught and healed and he goes into the temple, which is the the place where, um, you know, it was believed the spirit of God dwelled was in the temple. It was like the sacred and holy place where God was with us on earth. And, And he says, no, like you don't get to do this. Um, You don't get to to sell. And it had to do with, um, he was really uh, angry. The unjust system there, it had to do with um, the money changers. Basically, you could only uh, give certain things. You could only make sacrifice in the temple by using uh, temple money, essentially. And so you'd have to change your regular money for temple money. And there was extraordinary exchange rates and, um, and people were often then really cheated out of a lot of their, their resources. And so, you know, he goes in and he says, you've made this, you know, the system is the problem. It's not, I, I've addressed a lot of the, the symptoms that I've seen and a lot of the issues that I've seen, but now I have to address the system in and of itself. And so, again, if we're not looking at the systemic issues, then we're missing a huge part of what is going on, the reality, and therefore how to address it and and solve it. Um, and so you you have to look at both. And for for anybody, Christian or anybody who ignores the root of the problem, I think they are part of the problem. I mean, in that moment, they are being part of the problem. Deconstructing Dallas, Ryan Trimble, Sean Williams. We're visiting with Elizabeth Mosley of Highland Park United Methodist Church here on our Where Do We Go From Here series. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Deconstructing Dallas, Ryan Trimble, Sean Williams. Sean, grateful to be joined today by Elizabeth Mosley once again. Elizabeth, uh, I wanted to to ask you a question. You know, shame on us. We have had four uh, gentlemen on our on our series, but you were the first uh, the first woman and the first female faith leader. So I wanted to ask you, you know, how do what is the female perspective on these this event? And how do uh, female faith leaders, women faith leaders play a different role in all of this? I think that um, 
being a woman, a faith leader in, in particular, but but just being a woman, I, I mean, I think that there bring there is the opportunity for a lot of intersectionality when it comes to um, issues of gender and issues of race. Um, you know, I from what I have done, uh, from what I've read, and what the, some studying that I have done on this, um, you know, black women struggle um, in ways in significant ways more than white women. Um, and if we're not talking then about both issues of gender and issues of race, um, then we are, we're not addressing again, the root problems where they lie. And we're leaving out big portions of our population. Um, so as a woman in a still male-dominated field, I have faced a lot of sexism and um, aggressive or uh, uh, sexist comments, um, you know, even inadvertent. And by that, I mean, there's not the intent to harm, but the words and the way they're said and the fact they're said to me um, as a woman uh, is harmful. And so I've, I've faced that in my own experience, my own profession, again, being a, a minority kind of person in, a, a, in this field, in the field of ministry. But I also know that, you know, the history of women's rights in our country has not always been, uh, has not always intersected well with race, with uh, the history of uh, racial reconciliation. So um, women's the Roman's rights movement, and even, you know, way back in the beginning where it started, it kind of focused very much primarily, if not exclusively, on white women. And that was part of the strategy, honestly, in, in terms of moving it forward. However, that then again, isn't true uh, feminism, right? It isn't true um, social action on behalf of women if you leave out certain women. Um, right. And so what we, what I, what I feel now as a, as a woman who has again, experienced discrimination in um, just in my position as a whole uh, is I can't, I, I can't ignore and I can't um, pretend like I know everything that a black woman has has experienced or is feeling. And I can't, um, I can't speak for all women. Um, and if, if in my own work around gender equality, I am not also then addressing um, racial inequality, then I am not doing my job. And, um, and that, that conviction again has been growing in me um, over the past several years. And, um, so I have started doing more work around that. And I'll tell you, it is difficult to, uh, not have a defense mechanism, you know, a kind of a defensiveness around some of the, the understanding and the nuance to this conversation. Um, because it is so easy as a woman to say, 
well, I know what it's like to be discriminated against. And while I do, to some degree, <laughs> I, I still don't know anything close to the full degree of how some women, women of color, and particularly women who are Black, are discriminated against. And so to be, to take a step back and say, okay, my, uh, you know, woman card does not, uh, does not entitle me to, to know everything and claim everything. Um, so, so that's been a big, that's been a big part of my own journey and my own learning around my gender and around, um, around my race. I mean, the fact that I'm a white woman gives me a lot more power and security by far than women who are black or other women of color. I, I wanted to um, focus a little bit on the church. And uh, obviously we're here in the Bible Belt and in the South, we, we love our religion, uh, Christianity being the main religion. And at the same time, we know that this is a place specifically in the South where slavery flourished flourished. And after that, Jim Crow flourished. And so here we are today. And I wonder how can white churches work to continue to overcome this history uh, that supported this silence and and instituted some of these mistreatment uh, areas where black Americans were mistreated? Like how does the the church continue to to push through that and, and, and become more of an agent for change? I think that's a great question because I think there are two different ways you can look at it. And there's probably lots of ways just off the top of my head. There are, there are a couple. Um, The first is you can look at what a church is doing with its money and with its mission. Um, And that means looking at where churches give and how they are active in their community. Um, You can look at where churches, um, how they send and kind of mobilize their people to go out into the communities and how they do that, right? So kind of where they go and how they they articulate that kind of mission and, and work. Um, and that is some a place that I think a lot of churches need to look at, right? A lot of churches, especially white churches, need to look at how they are spending their money in the community for causes in the community um, or to create mission opportunities in their community and how where are they going, who are they serving with, um, and, you know, just an example of that kind of new of a, how, how nuanced this is, is it's so important, I think, for a lot of churches. And really, I would say this is across the board with, with any nonprofit or any individual, really. I mean, the idea is not to go and serve others or to go and do ministry to people. But the idea should be that you do ministry with people, that you are in community, in relationship with individuals, and you are therefore listening to them and learning from them. And the ministry and the the mission work that you do is integrated into the communities where you are doing that kind of work. It's not, you know, a white church like swooping in and, uh, deciding what is needed. It is a white church listening to the communities where it wants to be, have an impact and listening to know what they are asking for. Um, and so we, uh, in the United Methodist Church in particular, and especially in the North Texas Conference, have 
really emphasized ministry with people as opposed to ministry to people. So that's one way I think that churches, again, white churches need to be very thoughtful and 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 critical. Remember, being critical of something, in my opinion, does not mean that you hate that thing or, or you don't like that thing. It actually is a result of a deep uh, affinity for, a deep love for something. If we're critical of something, often it comes from a place of deep caring. We want this to be better. So I would encourage um, you know, any member of any institution, really, but certainly if you are a member of a white church, um, I would encourage you to be very uh, thoughtful and to ask questions about where that church's uh, finances, the money, the resources, human resources, all sorts of things. Where are they going, and how are they going there? Um, how are we, how is that church kind of in connection with the people and the the areas that they they want to serve? So that's one way um, that I think churches can respond to this. The second is to speak directly to it from their platforms. And that includes in the pulpit and that includes on social media. Um, and I think this is the, honestly, this is the harder one. Um, this is the one that is the, the most difficult because this is where you are directly countering and confronting people kind of in their individual states. And by that, I mean, you know, you might preach or speak to a group of a hundred, two hundred, thousands, you know, however, however many people hear you preach or speak, but you're speaking them to them as individuals. And it's very difficult to preach and, and speak, I think, in a way that that kind of addresses every single person's issues or defense or perspective or, or way that they might approach this. And so you can get a lot of pushback when you speak on issues like race, when you speak on other issues of uh, human inequality and and human rights and justice issues, um, because you're speaking to people in this individual state that they're in that isn't necessarily um, open or or ready or available to hear um, to hear what you're having to say. And so that the pushback to that can sometimes be greater. Um, also because it's more direct, you know, it's more direct, it's more immediate. Like we feel when someone preaches or speaks something, it like hits us, you know, where we are and, and we can have an immediate reaction to that. So, um, so that's, that's harder, but if churches aren't speaking to this, um, then again, I think we are failing to follow Jesus, the, the path that Jesus has laid for us and called us, um, called us to follow. You know, again, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus shares this great commission at the very end, right? The very, very like last few sentences of the Gospel of Matthew is, is what is known as the Great Commission. And it is after Jesus um, has been crucified, died, and has resurrected, and he has encountered his disciples. And it's just such a rich few statements. And I, Obviously, this isn't a study of this text, so I don't have time to go into all of it. Um, but at, one of the things he says is he says, go and baptize, you know, all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says this, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I think a lot of times we forget what that looks like. It, it means that we actually have to teach and talk about 
what Jesus has asked us to do. And while we then can look and see that Jesus doesn't say anything very specifically, right? The word racism is never used in, in the gospels. However, Jesus has encounters with people of other races, of other religious affiliations, and the way that Jesus addresses them is so telling, and we have to teach that. So that means actually talking about it. We don't just get to, um, you know, hide behind uh, some some aspects of our faith and kind of make it neutral. Jesus is very clear about what he asks us to do as Christians. And again, if we're not willing to talk about it and teach it, then we are we're not we're not helping to further the kingdom, which is actually the point of the church. So um, so we're really missing then our overall call if we're not willing to address some of the things that that we're seeing. Um, and that that's a burden in a that's the burden of the church. It's the mission of the church. It's something the church needs to constantly um, be critical of itself around how we are doing this and and how can we do this better. Well, Elizabeth, that that leads perfectly into my next question. You know, I was uh, visiting with my wife Lauren last night, uh, who is a fan of yours, and and I said that we were interviewing you, and she said, "Well, you know, you have to ask her one question." And she had this; it was a real visceral response. She turned and looked at me and said, "You know, you have to ask her how she is approaching having a dialogue." about racism in the current state of our nation with your kids. You're a mother of three. Um, sh- you know, share with us how you're talking about this with your kiddos. Yeah, that uh, I think that's so important. Um, even as a minister, you know, so much of what we say is the first, our first congregation, if you will, is the congregation in our home. Um, it's our family. And if we're not doing the work in our family, then we can't be expected to do it well in the congregation as a whole. Um so yeah, it's that's super convicting to me. Um, we have three kids. Our oldest uh, is seven, and our youngest is three, and then we have a five-year-old in the middle. And so we're real busy and <laughs> always going. Uh, and uh, my husband and I, thankfully, are um, on the same page when it comes to a lot of this stuff. It's our, these are topics that we talk about often. Um, And so it was very natural for us to decide that we were going to talk to our children about them. One of the things, one of the resources that I have been reading specifically around how to talk to children about race is a book called Raising White Kids. And I cannot remember the author of it, so I'm so sorry. Um, But that has been very helpful to me and to my husband you know, even even before, though, it, part of what we've always realized is that if we don't name our whiteness, then we are not teaching our children to understand their privilege. And, um, you know, we have a son. Our oldest is a, a son. And so he has really then multiple types of privilege that he will enter the world with. Um, then we have two daughters. And they, again, also have multiple types of privilege. So if, we, if we're not naming then our privilege and the variety of ways that we experience it, then we are not allowing our kids to understand that they have it. 
So that, that really for us has been the first thing. Um, and that means naming our whiteness. That means pointing out, um, you know, uh, what books and shows our kids are watching to be aware of how the different genders are represented, how different races are represented. Um, from the very beginning, we've been very intentional about purchasing, purchasing children's um, books that portray a number of main characters of color, whether that's black or brown. Um, and we really are trying to then show and reveal to our kids not only just kind of general diversity, but but also the fact that as white kids, we're aware of that and we're aware of our privilege when it comes to that. Um, I don't know if we have time, but I, I, I'd like to share a story about a conversation I had with my son. Sure, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So he asked me um, what Nazis were recently. And how old your son? Remind seven. me how old your son Yeah, he's seven. So seven years old, he just finished first grade at a public school um, here in Dallas. He uh, he is uh, he's seven. Like I said, so he asked me, what are Nazis? And the only real um, connection that I can think of that he has had to not like the only exposure to Nazis that he's had. And this is going to sound so funny, maybe is through the sound of music. That movie. Um, My kids love that movie. And. You know, but the Nazi, the Nazis are a very like big part of that movie. It's it really, if you look at it, is not a movie about you know seven children that sing together in one family. It really is a movie about um, the movement about Nazism and and the resistance to that and how that plays out across one family. So they love that movie. That's been, in my opinion, or my awareness is only exposure. But we were on a walk and. Um, we had passed a place where someone had graffitied um, the Nazi symbol, the symbol, um, you know, that little black spider. The swastika, yeah. Yeah, the swastika, thank you. <laughs> and, um, and so we, at the time, we had talked about it. And so we were passing that place again, and he remembered that we had talked about it then. And he said, what, what are Nazis? And so I explained, um, again, roughly, keeping in mind he was seven, that it was a group of people who uh, didn't like anybody who, who wasn't like them. And that included um, people who believed differently, so specifically Jewish people, and that included people who looked differently, so specifically people who had different skin color, including um, different nationalities in Eastern Europe, as well as Black people. Um, that included uh, people who uh, loved different people. So if you were gay, I mean, all sorts of, of things like that. And I kind of explained. And so then we started talking about the people in our life that we knew um, who who Nazis wouldn't like. Right. He started he started kind of naming people that that fell into those categories. And he he you know, as we kind of talked through all that, he, he kind of said, well, well, I would go and we would protect those people, wouldn't we? And I said, well, sure. Yeah, we would certainly try to. And he goes, but Nazis would like us, wouldn't they? And it, it kind of, it took me aback at first um, sure. because he was, you know, he was saying something that I was like, oh, you know, like, I, like that. Are you, are you allowed to say that? Like, he was kind of like, Right. I mean, wouldn't, we would be OK because Nazis would like us. And 
and this is again where that that book raising white kids was very helpful to me um because she addresses the author addresses this kind of situation with her daughter um one time where her daughter says like but we're safe because we're white and um and so in that moment, I just, again, realized that this was part of my son's own racial, his, his own racial identity was forming around these types of conversations. And so I said, you know, at first on the surface, maybe the Nazis would think that we were like them. And then I said, but Nazis don't really like people who didn't agree with them and who didn't like them. So they actually wouldn't like us at all either. Um, because our family does not think what Nazis did and unfortunately are doing um, is good or right. So they wouldn't like us because we would actually disagree with them. And and I I don't know, honestly, if that was right or wrong. And so anybody who's listening might be like, you've traumatized your child or, you know, we're very insensitive. But But in that moment, it was a way for me to remind him that Yes, we have privilege because of our socioeconomic status, because of the color of our skin, because of um, his gender, because, you know, we, uh, uh, you know, uh, we're, um, oh, I can't think of, <laughs> I can't think of how to say it. Um, we have, we have lots of privilege, basically. So yes, we have lots of privilege. Um However, because of our privilege, we use it to support and to be thoughtful about how we use our privilege um, in terms of caring for and loving those who do not enjoy the same privilege we do. Um, yeah, what a great story! I mean, th thank you for sharing. And we'll 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 look up the book and we'll share it in the in, the, in our uh, show notes as well, so people can sh share with their kiddos. So we, we wanted to make sure that people are able to find you if you are, um, if they want to find you on social media or, or any websites, uh, what would be the best way for folks to, to get a hold of you? Um, well, first of all, the author is Jennifer Harvey. So I just looked it up, okay, um, Raising Right Kids. But, um, you know, I am very active on Instagram. Uh, I guess that's, I'm a product of, of my time a little bit. Um so I'm active on Instagram. My handle is E-E-Mose, E-E-M-O-S-E. -E -E. um, and I'm on Facebook as Elizabeth Mosley. Um, I have a Twitter account, but I don't, I'm not as active um, on Twitter. So, so you won't, you won't see a lot of well, what I'm doing. We'll, we'll find you on the gram. We'll just find you on the gram. We can do that. Um, but we do want to thank you for coming on and, and sharing your experience, sharing your stories. We hope to be, uh, and contact a little bit more. We want to thank you for that. Yeah, it was my privilege. Uh, this is Deconstructing Dallas. Sean Williams, Ryan Trimble. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back, Deconstructing Dallas, Sean Williams, Ryan Trimble. Uh, Ryan, I am so thankful that you were able to uh, coordinate with Reverend Mosley because we really needed to hear what she had to say. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm 
grateful. Uh, thank you, Lauren, for, you know, the, the kick under the table to make sure to ask her about how she's talking to her kids about this. I think it's really important. You know, we've been, we've been working on that here in our household. We've got little ones, but it's never too early to start these conversations. And so, um, uh, you know, really appreciate her coming on. Well, um, I guess we, we, we have not said that we have a specific number of interviews we're going to do with the series, but um, I do think we'll have at least one more guest that we're working on. So uh, we won't tease that one just yet, but I think it's a, another voice that we want to hear. But again, you know, I'm thankful for uh, Reverend Mosley and please, when you, if you get a chance to see her, please let her know how much we appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been Deconstructing Dallas. Again, our series, Where Do We Go From Here? Based on Dr. Martin Luther King's book of the same title uh, with the subtitle Community, uh, Chaos or Community. And we really are thankful for um, our bosses, our co-workers, our listeners. Like this has been a very um, emotional series for us. Ryan and I have had a, a number of conversations offline about this we've been up at one o'clock in the morning planning for this and so uh we thank everyone who's taken the opportunity to listen um we don't take it lightly please share this with your friends please share this with your family um let let us know how you what you think about what we're saying if you think we're off on something let us know give us a shout that's what the whole conversation is about and what it's for we want to thank MZ Studios and Michael Zavala, who's done a yeoman's job of trying to cut through all of our clips and all of our conversations and making it into uh, some very fine audio. So we really are thankful for that. So until we come back on the next go round, this is Deconstructing Dallas, Sean Williams, Ryan Trimble. Adios. Adios.